Welcome to The Hero's Journey, a podcast that explores the lives, challenges, and triumphs of some of our planet's greatest activists. I'm Ashley Lukens, your host and your guide, as we wander across our digitally connected planet and learn just what people are doing to make this world a better place. From lawyers to chefs, students to elders, this podcast is as much about strategy as it is about hope and inspiration. When it comes to overcoming the impossible, sometimes you have to see it and hear it to believe it. Aloha, everybody. Welcome back to the hero's journey. Get ready for a rousing conversation with Nicole Capretz, who some people in California like to call her the godmother of 100% clean energy. She's an environmental attorney and the founder and CEO of the Climate Action Campaign. And she was the primary author of San Diego's groundbreaking 100% clean energy energy climate action plan i i mean you'll see it you'll i mean you'll listen to it i just really connected with nicole's story of strategy and tenacity and recovery and um just what we need to do to in her words steal ourselves for all of the losses and challenges that we incur as we move towards victory. And Nicole is certainly um, someone who can be partially credited for really huge policy victories around climate. So I think it's a powerful recipe for us all to look to as we work towards um, trying to end this climate crisis. Enjoy. As I was reading your bio, I was thinking to myself, like, what was that like for you to be working on climate issues before many people really cared about and even believed in climate? Mm -hmm. And how has your journey sort of arced and moved as um, we really come to be living in the midst of now a climate crisis. Yeah. Yeah. Climate emergency. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah. There was something more simple, which is like, how did you get started in yeah. the climate conversation? Like when was the first time you realized that this was something worth paying attention to? Yeah. Great question. Um, so like many folks of my generation, Gen X, uh, we didn't really start with it being a climate conversation. It started with clean air, clean water, um, environmental justice. Uh, certainly we were not being, uh, we were not capable of calling out like racism or white supremacy or patriarchy or any of the kind of overarching systemic drivers of a lot of these problems. Um, but we did know that there was this major public health and pollution threat from many different sources and just our capitalist system and that it was impacting communities of concern the most. But that's kind of where, where my journey started is in San Diego at an environmental justice organization with frontline communities. Again, these are all new terms that we did not use. And now we can call it out as environmental racism, but it's, it was a community that is buffered by freeways and a port, a very high active polluting Are port. we talking about Barrio Logan? Or? Yes, I'm talking about Barrio Logan mm -hmm. and National City mm -hmm. and uh, Chula Vista, which is in San Ysidro near the border. And so that's kind of where my training started really i had i had some previous experiences that were leading up to kind of my most the job that was most formative to my career but that's that's where i entered this space and again we climate was not what we were was not in any lexicon or dialogue it was just all about air quality and public health and so that was uh jarring to learn as a white privileged person who did not really understand until I saw it firsthand. And we were very focused on residents and organizing residents. So just, you know, understanding their journey from a, you know, a secondhand experience, obviously, but just witnessing it and hearing from them and being out in the community and experiencing it, um, you know, just as a visitor. But 
uh, at the time, San Diego was very conservative and we were not, we were marginalized. We were not a welcome organization or part of the political establishment. We we're definitely much outsiders, you know, knocking on the door, trying to get elected officials to listen to us. It was, it was I, I think, an important lesson for me about how power, you know, matriculates and how to get it and where power usually resides. So I had, I had a lot of incredible lessons learned, you know, how to navigate a a very challenging environment um, politically and still have your voice heard. Like how, and not obviously not just our, you know, the professional advocates, but the residents, how do we center their voices and enable them to feel like they're a part of a conversation that's decisions are being made that directly impact their life and they're not even at the table, you know? So it's a lot of just a really extraordinary experience of just seeing so many different elements of politics and public policy and power and, you know, interfacing. So that was kind of my beginning into this arena in the most substantive way. And then uh, from there, one of my friends uh, (laughs) ran for office, kind of on a lark, or at least that's how I viewed it. Because I was like, what are the odds of a progressive environmentalist winning in San Diego? Again, at that time, very conservative. And um, she asked me to join her campaign. And I was like, well, I mean, you know, like, Again, sort of understanding how power, uh, how we gain power. I knew we needed, like, it's not enough to just be on the outside, kind of trying to influence the inside. We needed champions on the inside. And so I was like, well, I think our odds are slim to not, but it's worth it. Let's start knocking on doors. I mean, we didn't know what we were doing. Honestly, we were just completely naive. Um, Can I ask her her name? Because I was in San Diego like 2004. Four oh, two. yeah, Donna Fry. Wow. <laughs> Wild. You, yes, I'm sure you do know who she is. Uh, she had quite a quite a journey in politics. Donna Fry. Yeah, Donna Fry. Wow, that was crazy. Yeah, she, legendary. Like, her election stolen or? Yeah, so that was kind of the beginning of the kind of the, that was kind of the peak. Well, that was obviously not a good experience, but that when, when we ran for mayor on a writing campaign, that was after about four years of when we had, you know, really gone up against the power establishment and struggled to win change. Um, but when she did win that first, you know, this was 2000 when she did win, it was shocking to the whole system. She was not like anybody else. You definitely could visualize her, right? A beach sort like her, her husband is a famous surfer that frankly helped us win. Because like I said, I didn't think, I don't think either of us thought she really had a decent shot. Um, but her her husband, Skip Fry, is such, so famous in the clean water surf community. And we had a beach community as part of our district that it propelled her. Um, and she's just a badass and, you know, different than everybody else and just a truth teller and, you know, no BS and just, will you know, has conviction, just kind of a refreshing brand. So anyhow, she got to City Hall. She shook it up. And then we ran again. She's we're always doing crazy things. Like, I guess that's just kind of part of my journey. Things that no one thinks we're going to do and that we don't really think can work. But we did write. We did run as a writing candidate for the mayor of San Diego against two white male Republicans. And it was got so much attention. Yes, that people had to write in her name. I mean, it was like people were like, I remember all the pundits going on TV and like these people have no chance. Like no one writes a name in. I mean, that just does. I mean, yes, of course, people write Santa Claus or, you know, Brad Pitt or something silly, but not a legitimate writing candidate like that's, you know, so we were, you know, again, marginalized, but we were so used to that. Like it didn't even phase us. There was no fear about it. There was no uh, uncomfortableness I just, because we need. I just to want to it. pause you, so yeah. our listeners, because I think we're talking insider language. And for our listeners, this is San Diego in the early aughts. Mm-hmm. A woman wins the mayoralship through yes. a write-in campaign. Yes, and San Diego at that time, as you said, was incredibly conservative. It was very much dominated by the military, by Mm -hmm. developers, and by this kind of what here in Hawaii we understand to be an economy built for visitors and not permanent residents. Yes. And um, this is also a community where you're organizing um, a very historically symbolic Latino community along the border where Mm -hmm. 
Cesar Chavez comes out of that community and the mm-hmm. organizing of farm workers. And so I'm hearing that you have this friend that agrees to run for mayor you're working <laughs> on your campaign and you write in her name and like, just take that moment. And <laughs> she wins. I remember feeling like, holy shit, <laughs> anything is possible. Anything. Yeah. It felt like a really powerful moment. And then we watched the machine start to suck all the momentum in. And That's so right. That's what right. happened? Yeah. That's a great summary. Um, yeah, she got, I think, 175,000 people to write in her name. And that's, <laughs> that's how she crazy. won. Yeah, totally crazy. We had, And so then the establishment marshaled their forces and, you know, forced a vote count, a recount. So I was the campaign manager. So I was there at the Registrar of Voters. And yeah, we just, they were just, I honestly, as I tell people, my strongest memory from that experience is shock. But really, when the first time I went to the Registrar of Voters, when the recount was starting, and literally just seeing physical ballots up piled high, they were all the people who had written her name because the rest they could put in a machine, right? If you had punched the ballot, it just went in a machine, they recounted. But for hers, they had to do a manual recount, right, with the paper ballots. So I was just so floored because it's like you hear 175,000, it doesn't, it doesn't really doesn't you can't tangibly you know feel it but then when i saw it i was like oh my god we did that that's so crazy so but <clears throat> despite the fact that the votes were legitimate and um uh you know we had won they there was a lawsuit filed and and so i sh- so i should caveat to say she wasn't declared the winner immediately what had happened was that yes this challenge happened the vote count happened and so there was some ballots at the end that were specifically challenged and it became a court case and what happened was people would write in donna fry but then they had not filled in the bubble i mean this is how silly and mechanical we lost on a technicality the law's been changed but they they wrote her name in but didn't fill in the bubble so Literally, the argument of the establishment was that people didn't actually vote for her. They were still considering all their options. And until they had fill, put a little check mark in the bubble, it didn't count. So that's what we lost on just a few votes where voters had, you know, inadvertently not put a check in the ballot, in the ballot bubble um, with their pen. And that's how we lost. And, and so then, um, ironically, the guy who won resigned like a month later. <laughs> I mean, you can't make this up. He resigns. And then we go up against another white male political establishment figure. And at that point, the whole like then the establishment had totally circled the wagons. And we're like, oh, my God, OK, we, we need to stop this. And then we lost in that second round. So that was crushing. That was that was really, really crushing because she was still a council member. So we still had to be there <laughs> at council under this new white guy conservative. And I also just want to provide some context for the listeners, at least on my own story, Nicole, is that my first election, my baby little 18-year-old vote was cast in Bush v. Gore. Mm -hmm. I was a freshman at college in Poughkeepsie, New York. And, you know, I mean, I also, I come from a very white Christian conservative community. And the idea of representative democracy has always worked for me Mm -hmm. um, because I represent the establishment. And then here we have, I don't know if you remember this election night for Bush v. Gore, but we didn't get the results for like weeks. Same. Yes. So then here I am four years later in San Diego working in the progressive community. And this thing happens with Donna Fry, and it felt like the engines of democracy are broken. Mm-hmm. And it, and how powerful to have that lesson early in your indoctrination because <laughs> we're having it all over again. Yeah. Um, it definitely. So I just appreciate that. And I appreciate just the chutzpah that it <laughs> takes to run a right in mayoral campaign and like have everybody tell you you're crazy. Yes. You're never going to win. This is stupid. Why are you doing this? And to watch the reverberations of that for years to come. Yeah. 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 I mean, thank you for that perspective. You know, I think part of my 
survival tactics, like in this space is just politics is, you know, letting go need to say you have to let go, but also like forgetting <laughs> and just like, ah, uh, gotta go look, look ahead versus look past. So that's kind of fun to revisit that, you know, some my mind is going back and some of the scenes and experiences and feelings. And I will say it was a pretty dark time when we went back to council and I didn't, I didn't last very long because it was, we had no, we were cornered and we had no place to implement policies that meant anything. Um, and so I was just like, I need, I need to regroup because this is, you know, this, this was pretty much, we were for a good eight years. We knew like this was, this is the, this guy was going to be mayor. And it was, again, we didn't have a progressive majority on council, didn't have a progressive mayor. It was like, okay, I, I feel trapped here and I don't know the way out. So I actually left city hall and I left the country. <laughs> so yeah, this is my, like, uh, uh, I don't want to say eat, pray, love. Cause that seems too glib. It was more, you know, it was more like, I, I'm too cynical at this point. I'm feeling like I'm not approaching things with the same fresh eyes and like open heart because it was so crushed. And so anyhow, I lived, I moved to Buenos Aires for a year and then lived in Seattle for a year. And then after that, I came back and I was like totally back to normal and like ready to go. And so I did. And I went back to the same organization, Environmental Health Coalition, and fought another five years for environmental justice. And then, um, you know, if you want me to continue the story of how kind of then I got this. Yeah, I just have one pause moment. Sure, because I, I think there is. Uh, like there's a short sightedness that comes with youth yes. and a long road that starts to emerge with age and experience. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that just because we're losing temper or just because we're losing battles doesn't mean we're losing the war mm -hmm. and you know there's the oft-spoken mlk quote like the arc of justice is long i mean the arc of history is long but it bends towards justice mm -hmm. and for me a lot of what this podcast is helping us to think about. I mean, we don't have like a list of the nine key factors, how not to become jaded, cynical <laughs> is what do we do when we lose and mm -hmm. we have to collect ourselves? So I'm yes. actually really appreciating. We, we had some, we interviewed someone yesterday that talked about their burnout moment. Like, what do you do when you become really jaded and cynical because you had the chutzpah to fight and lose a battle that maybe changed everything for San Diego in the long term, but really just felt super painful. So I'm wondering, like, how did you collect yourself and restore yourself in Buenos Aires? And mm -hmm. how did that sort of like global exposure resource you? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it, I didn't really have a game plan. I was so burned out that I just needed to completely remove myself from uh, California. And I kind of immersed myself. I mean, it's so, it seems kind of just stereotypical, but I, you know, started doing yoga. I started exploring, you know, spirituality. I mean, I was so desperate for something to cling to, to give me hope and to, again, kind of bring me back to the place of equilibrium because I knew I wasn't there. I knew it. And, you know, you have to be self-aware enough to like trust your gut about where you're at, because to be a warrior, like you, you need to be centered and able to like, you know, to be kind of people can blow you back and forth, but they can't, you know, push you down all the way. That's how I kind of look at it. And if, when I'm not feeling that I'm always cognizant that I need to either take vacation. And I mean, this was the extreme time in my life of needing to literally leave the country uh, and just experience different culture, different, you know, and just again, not be able not have to read the news. Like mm -hmm. I needed a, a complete diet and uh, just step away. That took months, by the way, for me to stop reading the news. And I mean, specifically San Diego news months, because I was so in it. And I'm back in it, by the way, like now I am also just as addicted to like the San Diego day-to-day -day political drama because it's, it is what the space we're in and we, I, we have to know it. It's relevant to how we power map and how we 
you know, strategize and how we operate in the space, mm -hmm. but it's exhausting and draining. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, um, but yes, for me, I did need two years. And then, like I said, when I came back, people were like, you're like a different person. <laughs> I was like, yeah, cause I didn't, I totally, yeah. Just went on a media diet and, um, I knew because it's so in my soul and my heart that I was going to come back. I just, I was letting, I just let my, um, I just let it play out as long as I needed to before I stepped back in. So I was broke. Let me tell you, it was, it was rough. It was, it was not good times. It was not fun times, but, uh, I was living, you know, hand to mouth at that point, but at the same time it was necessary and needed. And so, um, you know, that's, and so, like I said, I came back refreshed and got back in the game. Mm. Do you, like, I, I oftentimes think about our pauses as not just immediately nourishing, mm -hmm. but it like creates a little pot of gold inside of you mm -hmm. that the more we practice filling that pot of gold, the more we can resource it. Like, how do you drop into that time today to yeah. kind of resource you to go forward? I'm very clear on when I'm being depleted of energy and motivation and hope. <laughs> I mean, like I can feel it. And I, again, I sense the jadedness creeping in. And then I immediately, like I said, I do mini vacations. I'm, I do weekends away. I, I'm very keen on my exercise and going, you know, out for walks and, you know, calling friends, um, trash TV. I'm the first to admit I am like, Prime number one, celebrity culture and trash TV. And it has nothing to do with me really caring. It has everything to do with a complete escape <laughs> from the reality of, you know, the the lift, the, you know, the the uh boulder up a hill that we're um experiencing. So I I have many different tools and I um I'm not even embarrassed about them because they serve a purpose like you said to just keep me centered and able to like do that and then come back and not feel yes. like you know to re again just keep making sure I am keeping that optimism um and I'm capable of thinking creatively that's another kind of lesson I've learned is I think and I feel like Center for Food Safety actually excels at this just based on watching social media is like how to still have a sense of humor about it all. I mean, and some joy and some, you know, just like, uh, well, what? I can't think of the perfect expression, but like the fruit, yes, somewhat futile, but at the same time, like we're in this together and we've got to be able to laugh at ourselves and laugh at the situation and yet still fight, obviously, still fighting, but balance, you know, all these different emotions need to be in play. <laughs> For me, there's the societal reckoning with as egregious and fucking terrifying as this moment is, the thing that's going to propel us forward is joy. Yeah. So like, how do you continue to resource yourself with joy, mm -hmm. with happiness, with laughter. <laughs> I mean, it's funny. We have a battle over the CFS social media inside mm. of the organization. Ah. There are people like we're litigators. Mm. We're serious. We're mm. doing the hard work. And I'm like, mm. yeah, but that's not what motivates people. Agreed. It, it's joy. It's laughter. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, there it can be both. Cause I read your posts about your litigation and I'm interested in it and I'm like, Oh, they won. That's amazing. And awesome. And I, I'm glad you guys are informing me, but yeah, I also love your humor and joy. And it's funny. I'm trying to get my team. I've said, Oh, you guys got to check this organization out, you know? And I would say my comms team is resisting because they you know what people aren't sure, like how to, how to thread that needle and, mm -hmm. you know, how to balance those emotions. But I think it's the human experience. And I agree. Like, We've, uh, yeah, we, uh, and if, and you know, another thing you were asking, how do I feel my well? You know, I'm a huge, I have certain artists that I love and I like am obsessed. Like I fly across the world just to see these people. Cause it's just like joy, the joy, just, you hit the nail on the head. I'm like, I'm like, what do I feel? Number one, I feel completely, it's like the one time when I'm at a concert, when my brain turns off 
Mm-hmm. which is just like, I know it's like, my brain is like, oh, thank you. Let us reconfigure, like, let us reset <laughs> because while you're like screaming and yelling and dancing and, you know, being silly, like we are recovering <laughs> because of your intensity, mm-hmm. you know? And so I think for intense people, which is a lot of people in the movement, in the space, and you kind of need that intensity and passion. Yeah. We have to be intentional about the opposite. So I also, I would say I'm a very intense person, but I think you would also find if you ask my sister or anybody, I have like maybe one of the best senses of humor because it's like, they're one and the same. I don't know. Really? Like, so, yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I totally agree. You, we, uh, and I'm, I, so it's, I appreciate you saying that there is kind of like, people aren't sure how to navigate that within the organization. And I'm seeing that in my own organization. And I think, yeah, that's a movement issue. <laughs> Oh, they still we take this seriously. moment. Yeah. I learned it crystallized for me actually during my years in San Diego when we were doing sort of anti-border activism. Mm. And as you know, the border is and was back then heavily militarized mm-hmm. and cutting across families and history. I mean, the border makes no sense for the region if people understand how borderless the relationships are. Yep. And we kept having these protests and I felt like the cops would come down on us so hard mm-hmm. that yep. we showed up at a border protest as clowns <laughs> and did this cross-border clowning event. And it rendered the entire situation absurd in broadly intelligible ways that like a serious protest would have just been seriously sort of clamped down by the cop. Oh, yes, yes. Um, And so I've continued to go back to that in my writing and in my research and in my own strategies. Like sometimes the face of power is so chilling Mm-hmm. that the only way to set it back on its heels is to laugh at it. Mm-hmm. And then in that moment, you see like a rupturing of the facade, yeah. you know, which is about fear. It is about hopelessness. That's what mm-hmm. large corporations benefit from. I mean, the yeah. more scared you are of them, of the system, of climate change, of white supremacy, the less you'll feel resource to be able yeah. to fight it. Agreed. Um, and I do feel like that's what we get on our side, uh, air quotes for those who are just listening, is we do get to resource joy and love. Mm-hmm. I mean, these are things that we're fighting for. Yes. Um, that's right. So, yeah, I really appreciate that, that, that moment. Um, you know, yeah. you keep talking about yeah. your organization, so it's a great time to kind of pivot back. So we have you... At the city council in San Diego, working to advance a progressive vision mm-hmm. of the city. Yep. Um, and that's when us to now. Yeah. And and by the way, so those years, 2004, 2005, is when climate first kind of came on the radar as a term. And in our backyard in San Diego, as you know, is Scripps Institute of Oceanography, which is one of the most foremost climate experts, you know, they're using the IPCC and they meet with the Pope and, you know, they're very uh, prestigious. And so um, we, you know, one of my last acts was bringing them to city hall. I was like, you guys need to start getting political. Like, um, thanks for issuing reports, but like, it's not translating. So anyhow, that's when my experience with climate kind of um, really uh, started. And <clears throat> Then, yes, I was at, even I get like, what was this? I've been, it's been a zigzag. I've been inside and outside the system. And I think both, both places are valuable, by the way. And so I respect both. Um, you need champions on the inside and the outside. It's like, it's a dance and yeah, they both interplay off each other. Um, but so I eventually ended up leaving EHC because I had a, a opportunity, a very rare opportunity where we're having political drama and our merit our first progressive mayor had to resign in disgrace and, and the council president, you know, just automatically became the mayor and he needed environmental staff. And so all I cared about was, Hey, we, I want to do this climate plan. I had been leading the citizen group for climate action, but the Republican mayors had always trashed our plan. And so finally I was like, well, if you'll let me do a new climate plan, you know, go bold and big and, you know, groundbreaking, uh, give me staff, give me resources, you know, then yes, I'll take a leap of faith. Cause it was a six month gig. I didn't have any, couldn't, 
he couldn't, he was going to go back to his old team and office and he wouldn't have a job for me. So I was like, well, again, leap of faith, like, you know, just do the risky thing. I'm comfortable with risk and, um, just opportunity couldn't be passed up. So anyhow, so that's when I wrote kind of the city of San Diego's at that time was a very audacious climate action plan and took a lot to get through the bureaucracy, but eventually this, uh, the person who was the mayor at that time backed it. And then a new Republican mayor came in and it became, you know, we started over, but what I learned is that we didn't have enough support on the outside. So that's how I started my organization is that I knew we needed a broad base, a diverse base of uh, community and stakeholder, business stakeholders, small business, you know, um, community leaders, uh, community-based organizations. We just needed more people to be clamoring about it because the political will to actually implement this plan wasn't there. So anyhow, that's where I started Climate Action Campaign seven years ago. And so it's just been kind of a rocket, uh, a rocket ship from there in terms of uh, action and disappointment wins, disappointments, you know, uh, can navigating. We, can we yeah. go back to the juxtaposition of inside outside? Cause I yes. think for our listeners, like really understanding, um, that frame when it comes to change making is really important. So can you talk a little bit more about what that looks like, not only in terms of your own journey, but maybe successful partnerships that have moved big things forward? Yeah, for sure. I would argue that it's nearly impossible to make change without an inside champion, without somebody who you trust and who has shares your values and has the same goal, but they have access to the bureaucracy. They have access to the decision makers um, in a way that you don't because you're still on the outside. And building those- So you're talking about people that are elected officials or they work inside of a business that you're trying to change or- Well, so yeah. Okay. Let me be more clear. I, that's a good question. So initially I was just talking about the people who work who either are the elected official or the staff are elected official. San Diego is a big city, eighth largest in the country. So city of San Diego has staff and they have a large bureaucracy. So this is not a, you know, and the same thing applies to small cities, but you're just dealing at a smaller scale. But the city of San Diego is large. When you're a top 10 U.S. city, you have resources and you have a lot of different, uh, you have a lot of different layers of bureaucracy to <laughs> get through. So I believe, yes, you absolutely need an, at least one elected official who's going to be a champion, ideally a majority. I mean, it's kind of doing the power mapping, accounting the votes, that's essential. But you need that, even I would say as importantly, if not more importantly, is who's really doing the work, like actually writing the legislation, actually, you know, working within the bureaucracy to uh, get it approved through the multiple layers of people who can say no, you know, getting it through a city attorney's office, you know, this, there's just so many touch points for different places for pivotal policy to fail. And so you, you need to nurture and maintain those relationships. Um, and the trust is gained over time, but yeah, I would, I argue that you need, of course you need decision makers because they're hitting the vote. Yes or no, but you need their staff to, it can't just be any staff. It's gotta be somebody who's like you, you know? And so I always like when activists go on the inside working for an elected official, or even like you said, even working for the bureaucracy at a city that also has been hugely beneficial. And, 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 and as far as business groups go, cause they are a pivotal stakeholder. You can't, it's hard to pass policy with if they're opposing it. You can, but you're right. If you can get them on your side, then you have, then it's, you're unstoppable. I mean, frankly, especially, you know, you can't always get the big businesses because there's just so, yeah, there's so many reasons they don't even want to get political on controversial items, but you, small businesses are more nimble and they're more, you know, they're just regular people and they're, you know, they don't, they like fighting the man too. And so, cause they feel like that's what they do in their small business. So yeah, those are the kind of uh, forging those kind of relationships and partnerships and allyships are essential. And I would say for my organization, building those diverse coalitions you know, and, and doing the power mapping to see that this is the right coalition to win, to get the, you know, again, the ultimate vote count that you need, um, takes a huge chunk of my team's time, really maintaining those relationships, building them, growing them, expanding them is probably 75% of their time. Those are those relationships. 
Can I pause because there's something that I think about a lot and and now I mean for those who are just listening um, both Nicole and I are white and there is something I've noticed in my career when it comes to coalition building mm-hmm. is how whiteness mm-hmm. um, and the historical memory of governments working for us mm-hmm. that allows inside gaming strategies uh-huh. to make more sense than, for example, in San Diego, communities that have been um, functionally disenfranchised because they're quote unquote illegal uh-huh. or undocumented immigrants, uh-huh. Uh-huh. many of whom have been living in the U.S., I will say, yep. for generations. And paying taxes. Uh-huh. And paying taxes. I mean, that was a huge moment for me living in San Diego and meeting my first undocumented immigrant and realizing his grandparents are who came to the US. And he's now third generation undocumented. Wow. And it was like, wow, yeah. uh, any, anywho. So when you're dealing with communities that will never go down to city hall because mm-hmm. it's a threat to their well being, but their voices, their history, the truth of the system. Mm-hmm is an important part of the story you're trying to tell. Like, mm-hmm. how do you navigate that mm-hmm. when you're coalition building? Yeah, I mean, for sure, we, that's an essential part of the coalition, our place-based frontline community organizations. I mean, I would say those place-based organizations in those frontline communities are doing, obviously, they're the ones building the relationships with the residents and empowering them and training them, you know, and and elevating their voice in San Diego, the, the politics have shifted so significantly. So you're right. When I was working at this organization based in National City, um, believe it or not, we did bring, undo- I mean, we, we even though it was conservative, we were able to organize residents and bring them to the, the um, city hall and the port district hearings, um, the air quality control district hearings, and they could speak for themselves. Like there, there was no... So how, I don't know, that's San Diego conservative, I guess, you know, it's not the middle of the country where that was okay. And there, there was no really questions asked about whether they deserve to be there or something, whatever, some nonsense. We didn't really get that. So they definitely, but because they, they had that place and that voice because of this institution, this organization that existed in the community, right? There's no way they would have on their own known about the public hearing. <laughs> known how to communicate and testify at a public hearing, you know, known, you know, what the heck is power mapping? That was the central part of the organization's model was doing, they called it, um, they trained promotoras who, you know, not only spoke to other, you know, community members, but also would become the voice, you know, for their family and the community. And they were, but there was a lot of education and training before they started testifying or, and, and attending meetings with elected officials, you know, and, you know, being part of coalitions. So yeah, we, there, there is a history. I mean, this was, this was in the 1990s I was doing that. So there is a history of that happening in community. We, in San Diego, the term of art that is that the communities like is communities of concern. So that's what we use. Um, but so for communities of concern, they have had space. Now they haven't had power. So there is a difference, but you asked about how do we make sure their voices are not only integrated into a coalition and not only are their points of view like elevated and probably, you know, made to be the, the like they are leading on helping to develop the policy because they're, they're the ones who are living it, you know, and deserve to, they know the answers, right? The communities who are, who are experiencing the harm know the solution. So I think the good news is because we've had some institutional organizations and not just when I was working at, but there are others, um, that that has been uh, a practice that San Diego, the progressive movement in San Diego has, I think fairly again, successfully off and on, because that's just politics and power. But I think that piece of it has been successful in terms of residents feeling like they're, they have a voice and their voice is heard, not only in the coalition space, but at, um, in political spaces. Did so you that's, do anything? That's intentional. Did you do anything inside the coalition to forge those relationships of trust? Because this is a moment in our movement, right? Mm -hmm. Where white environmental organizations are Mm -hmm. leading on 
policy-focused interventions to right. climate, food, and right. agriculture. They're not leading in many ways, but yep. how do we then sort of like build relationships of trust and allyship and yep. collaboration yep. that might leverage privilege and comfort yep. working in predominantly white spaces, yes. but aren't taking up the place of the folks who need to be there. Yeah. And that's... <clears throat> Yeah, essential. Absolutely. And I think, again, San Diego has a long practice of building these relationships. So these are not short-term transactional relationships. People need, you know, you don't just, you don't just, people, people aren't just going to trust you. You have to earn it. And so you have to earn it over time. And I tell my team that all the time. You're not going to walk into a room and meet with some frontline community members and be trusted. That is ridiculous. I mean, I have, fortunately, you know, because we were evolving as a movement, you know, my team is diverse. So some of my team can walk in a room, be trusted because they're from the community. But when I walk in a room, it's literally just 25 years of being in the same political space. And so they're staff members of the organization, right? We, we've known each other for 10 plus years. You know, there's just, that's kind of sensed. And, but it is absolutely, like I said, nurtured and prioritized and, you know, when we're developing policy, the first thing we do, we have some organizations that we are super tight with. We have joint grants with. We re-grant to a lot of place-based organizations when we get a grant, not even because the foundation or the donor asked us to, but because that's the right thing to do. So make sure they have the resources to engage at the same, you know, we pay for participation in coalitions. We run a coalition, the Green New Deal Alliance, so we pay people to participate, be able to attend. Um, but probably as importantly is making sure like any kind of policy that we're developing, we reach out and say, let's have a conversation about this issue, this harm that we're seeing. Like what are some ways we jointly can think about what the solution is? So it's, we aren't just writing the policy and then asking for their support. We're at a table, messy as this process is, identifying and brainstorming you know, what are solutions? So sometimes that requires a facilitator, mostly just to like, because we all, diff I mean, we no one really knows the right answers. We're all just like fumbling around. People do research and bring ideas to the table and then community members will weigh in about whether they think like that's even feasible, you know, like, hey, that doesn't even, that's not culturally fit, doesn't fit. <laughs> that's not gonna work or this will work better. And, you know, so it's, again, it's messy, it's um, length, it's long, it's a, you know, but that is a practice, again, I feel like, I'm not saying we've mastered it. That's it's a lifelong process, but there's a there's a history of it. So we have some, uh, you know, some trust built that's been built up, and so that's happening right now. Just perfect example of how intersectional we intentionally are. We're working with a place based uh, uh, organization of refugees who are prioritizing tenant protection, um, which we see as you know, you I mean, essential. You I mean, people need a place to live. This is a fundamental human right. Um, so we're working with them on designing a protect tenant protection ordinance. Again, that is not our bailiwick. So we are just leveraging, to your point, our our power within the political system, and you know providing resources and um, joining them. Though we're joint partners on how do we pass, you know, how do we keep people in their homes, you know, how, that they deserve to be in. So we view that as an essential part of the climate movement. It's got to be intersectional, like, you know, can't just be about reducing greenhouse gas emissions. It's about quality of life. Something that's coming up for me as I think about this, you know, uh, another theme that we've been interrogating throughout this podcast is sort of like the intergenerational transfer of knowledge, mm. intergenerational power sharing. Yep. Um, and I would say that um, when chatting with my boss and everybody who's been listening to the podcast knows that we have a really great two interviews with Andrew Kimbrell in season one, there's been some pushback when I ask him, like, what does intergenerational power sharing look like? And like, what assets and, and strengths do millennials and Gen Z offer the movement? And how do we create space for those views and viewpoints? And then um, you know, how do we as a movement learn to younger folks learn to listen and like defer yep. to expertise and defer to <laughs> it's a yep. it's a dance right now. And I think 
particularly in the co- context of the climate conversation, mm-hmm. um, many folks my age and younger are pissed off yeah. at our elders that they allowed this fucking tragedy to go unchecked for mm-hmm. so long. And obviously um, that's not everyone. I mean, I think that's why Andrew kind of clapped back at me and was like, well, I haven't been on the sidelines. Um, but I had this moment where I was like, there is deep anxiety mm-hmm. around how do I show up in the right way mm-hmm. at the right time? Mm-hmm. And specifically for white folks navigating the movement yeah. in, in a post-Black Lives Matter mm-hmm. context where mm-hmm. attunement to one's own privilege matters. Yeah. Need to be able to demonstrate that not just in word, but in action and strategy. Mm-hmm. But when I heard you talking and I reflected on my own experience as a Howley living in Hawaii, which Howley is our term for white folks. And I remember mm. when I first moved here, my PhD advisor was like, you're always going to be a Howley, but you don't have to be a dumb fucking Howley. <laughs> and I thought to myself, as I was listening to you, I'm like, that's kind of it. It's right. like, we can build deep relationships of allyship and trust with communities that have never been served by the system. Here in Hawaii, it's predominantly Native Hawaiians who don't even believe in the legitimacy of the state and understand Hawaii as an occupied place. Asking them to get engaged on policy is a paradoxical request and can at times be a little tone deaf um, on the issues that matter most to Native Hawaiians. And we all acknowledge that if we're not working on climate policy at the governmental level, I'll tell you who is, giant corporations that would like to see no policies passed whatsoever. So it's like, we have to participate and we can't show up like dumb fucking Howleys. And what that takes to round back to what you said is time. Yes. It's just time in the fucking mud, Um, doing the dirty work of our organizing Yep. And relationship building. Yep. And it's not always, and I also, I might've painted like a pretty, too pretty of a picture. It, it has ebbs and flows and it has ups and downs. And there are some organizations who don't trust us, you know, and I'm okay with that. Do you know what I, like, meaning that's their right. And we'd have, we have to earn it. Like if some, something we've done is they don't agree with, or they think like we didn't do it right, then we have to just we still stay in, we're still coming to the table, meaning not, not to take over the table, but saying like, that's, that's totally, we respect that, but like, we're still, we still want to be here because we need all of us to win the big wins, you know? And no, no one really challenges that. Like, I think to your point, like everyone, we need a multi-racial, <laughs> multi-generational coalition to be powerful, you know, uh, uh, deep pocketed fossil fuel corporations who will stop at nothing and, you know, d- thrive on when we have weak links, right? This is their, whenever there's fight infighting on the left, the circular firing squad is firing squad, as we call it, is when they clink their champagne glasses. So I think there's kind of that overarching acknowledgement and understanding. So it's like, let's keep working at it. Like, let's not give up. Well, so, that's yes. what Vandana Shiva said. She's like, you Americans, you young people, you're obsessed with your differences. Mm-hmm. And you're losing sight of what you have in common and yes. what we're working towards. And yeah. that would be glib if a white person said that. But yeah. as a woman of color working in these movements for decades, I kind of honor the wisdom in that too. It yeah. doesn't mean oh, let's just focus on where we're going and not on the how, you know, we, we need to create change in the micro that we're seeking in the macro. Yeah. Um, but and I my, and let me just say, cause I think to your point and, you know, again, my age, so I'm 53. So I still have some years that I have, I have to work. <laughs> um, so in terms of energy and intergenerational, uh, you know, honestly, I say this all the time. I'm the favorite part of my job. I mean, the hardest part of my job, but also the part I view most important is that I am training the next generation to take over. And I think my team would agree. I prefer them to be the face of the organization. And what they don't know is that it's really because I need them to build their 
stamina and skills and I need them to get hit, like hit, like, you know, to understand, like there are people going to be gunning for you, lobbyists and stakeholders. And, you know, they have, they have their job, you have yours, but like, you got, I need you to be able to learn how to keep, you know, keep your sense of self and like your power. So it's, it's all part of the training. Um, Cause sometimes they don't want to be the face and I'm like, no, but see, not only are you the right messenger, more importantly, this is, you don't know in 10 years, this is going to serve you, you know, because then when you take over CAC, I'm definitely not going to be one of these people who holds on to, you know, I'm the founder. It's a classic, right? Founders like syndrome. I feel I can't, I'm counting it on the days till I can pass the torch. Um, and it also it circles back toward like self-care because I also feel like this work is exhausting and it does eat away you know, your central nervous system. And it's like, for my own preservation, I, I, you know, there will be, uh, um, I don't want to say exactly how many years, but you know, the clock is already going down for me. And again, it's not that I don't think I value, it's just like, I am happy to let the next generation take over, you know? Um, but yeah, so I view and I, we invest in coaching and in personal training and like, what do they want to, how are they going to develop their, what's their personal development plan? Cause even if they don't stay in the, some people are like, oh my God, the politics is too much. I can't take it. I'm like, that's fine. Just stay in the movement, please. <laughs> you know, like, so they're like, I just want to grow food on a farm. And I'm like, fine. That's, you know, that's still part of the movement. Um, but like, no matter where my team goes, like, I feel like, you know, I, usually the feedback I get is, oh, I'm so much better trained than my new peers. And so I'm like, oh, thank you. Yeah, totally. <laughs> I mean, I will say that's something that Andrew's done a really great job of at CFS. And I try to do that is like, this can't just be about what I want to do. It can't just be the Ashley show, even though I might be the most articulate on these issues in this moment, we need a broader set of voices. Yeah. And you know, I also don't know how many more white people, even white women, we need being the articulators of sort of complex issues that we're working within. Um, and that's the discomfort for my team. You can imagine, right? They're new to the space and they're suddenly having to like go lobbying or testify on very nuanced, you know, uh, technical policy issues. And I'm like, yeah, it's going to be you, not me. Cause I've done it. It's time. So they're like, what? I'm not ready. And I'm like, you are. And even if they're not, that's what, that, that's how I was trained. Honestly, I was thrown into the deep end and I didn't feel ready. And, you know, I was scared and nervous, but that's, that's, that's where the growth happens. And so I, I, I love watching that growth. You know, they don't know it. I'm just, you know, it's like uh, the, the wisdom that I have over these many years, but yeah, that, that is, if I leave no other legacy, that's like the legacy I want to leave is like, there's a new crop of very diverse um, young people who are ready because this battle is only, I mean, you know what I mean? This, it'll never end. The fossil fuel corporations, they have money till the end of time. So this, it's going to, it doesn't, we're gaining momentum, but um, I think CFS knows more than anybody. Like they have plan B, C, and D ready. Yeah, They are ready for the political winds to shift. And yet they know how to navigate those political winds still to delay action and undermine us. And, you know, uh, like just stop progress. And so my team has seen that, you know, like it's interesting to watch them just see politics unfold, even though they're like, we have all progressive council, we have progressive mayor. And yet the cap is sitting there, you know, <laughs> and I'm like, yep. Cause they still all need, I mean, you know, our political system is based on money and who gives money, you know, I don't have to tell anybody on, who's listening to this, that reality, but, um, in any case, I'm, I totally agree. And I, you know, I'm happy to, and when I feel like we're ready, I will step back. So I, I agree. We don't need my voice, but my role now is like, how can I just keep lifting up <laughs> uh, young people of color, especially um, to be the leaders of the movement? That's yeah. what, that's how we're going to win. I think ultimately. So I don't want this entire interview to go without having a little bit of a conversation around climate. Um, okay. And, <laughs> That's true. Um, although, again, I mean, this is the point. We know you're a leader, mm -hmm. climate action um, in San Diego, and really working in the machinations of government to yep. move climate plans forward. So yep. for those who are wondering, 
what are we talking about here? Like that's the legacy of work. And I'll do a little, you know, intro to, to kind of help people give context, but there is nothing more fucking terrifying than climate, the climate emergency. Yep. And I mean, here in Hawaii, we're watching homes fall into the ocean where yesterday an entire beachfront walkway on the south shore of Maui or yeah, west side of Maui just fell into the ocean. Wow. Um, So sea level rise is here. We know that the climate emergency is disproportionately impacting low-income communities. It's ravaging um, subsistence-based communities that rely on the earth and the weather for their food and well-being. We all do, but some of us are just further from that. Um, How how are you winning Mm -hmm. and how, and what's the challenges you face? Yeah. You know, we win again, I believe by creating these powerful coalitions of diverse stakeholders. Um, Always like to your point, centering the equity component of policy, like what, what's needed, being persistent, showing up. I always say like really politics is about who shows up and, and what to your, you know, to our, our earlier conversation, we have to make sure the right people are showing up and the right community members who are, you know, again, experiencing the most harm have to be the ones that we facilitate showing up, you know, so their voices are heard. Um, so I, yeah, that through line for me is just never giving up and persistence and just showing up like is, is I have found the, in addition to these coalitions, kind of the, the magic formula, because ultimately there is this, the same group of people. If you work, if you're, you know, you're a national organization, so it's different, but when you're a community-based organization in a space, it's the same people. They, everyone moves around to different you know, organizations or corporations or, you know, but the lobbyists are the same. The electeds are the same because they just move from one office to another, as you know, like they do not go away. So there's, so that again, you become as, as an organization, sort of a trusted voice, you know, and you have to earn that obviously over time. But like, I just think persistence is so important and the challenges. So we win, you know, I think through our coalition building, the challenges are that, you know, we have a large multinational fossil fuel corporation called SEMPRA, you know, building mo- most of the LNG plants in, in Houston and uh, New Orleans. Um, and they run, they operate uh, uh, two big utilities in California, I got, you know, electric and gas. So they have huge power, unlimited resources, and um, they're just messing with the public because they pre- present a green face and a commitment to net zero and, you know, how they just play the game and they, but they effectively delay and stop a lot of progress. And it's through money, it's through soft lobbying, you know, it's, it's, they, they just have their ways of misinformation that they spread, especially to decision makers or the bureaucracy in, in different cities. Um, So that is, and, and I'd say the other challenge is like keeping people keeping people um in the space you know it is there is politics is not for the faint of heart it's heartbreaking it's soul crushing you cannot escape that i tell my team that directly you you will have your heart broken in this job i guarantee it the progressive electives will not will let you down we see this all the time so like steal yourself because they have their own political calculations going on and so they're not going to do the bold and the right thing and then but what, what, how are you going to respond to that versus react to it, you know, and how are you going to, again, pres, you know, self-preservation on, in, within that. So I would say that's a challenge, like keeping people being willing to still, to not check out and to just sort of give up. I think that's a huge challenge. And I, um, you know, I, I don't say, I, ha- I don't think I have the magic answer, but I, I do think we there's enough wins to where I hopefully, you know, people will stay in this space and they see the power that they're building, you know, for the community voices, I think. Um, but yeah, it's it's there's a lot, there's a lot of dynamics happening for sure. The other challenge I will say, just to point it out, because we're in the nonprofit world, is that it's 
it's hard to constantly be on a treadmill of fundraising because that's, you know, much amount of time that energy that takes, that takes away from us being in the fight, the fossil fuel corporations don't have to expend. <laughs> you know, we're, we're spending a ton of energy because I have to bring in my team. They're part of the fundraising machine on that piece of the puzzle. Um, I think that's another huge challenge for nonprofits, you know? Yeah, I know all too well. Uh, <laughs> I really appreciate your time today, Nicole. Oh, uh, I loved being here. Feel like your soul sister. Uh, <laughs> good, good. And um, I'm just wondering if, like, you can give our listeners one last like story of hope mm-hmm. or like a okay. win. Yeah. Um, that demonstrates the value of tenacity over time. Great. I would say as an organization, our biggest win has been when we uh, took down Sempra. I was just highlighting Sempra as this big evil fossil fuel corporation. When we basically broke away from our monopoly utility, San Diego Gas and Electric, and there's a program in California called Community Choice that allows communities to take back control just of electricity, not of gas. So it's not the whole kit and caboodle, but it is a big piece of the puzzle of trying to clean, put clean electrons onto the grid that powers our lives. And so when we announced it was part of this climate action plan that I developed in the mayor's office and then climate action campaign, we took it from there to build the community will and the political will. And as soon as we launched, Sempra formed uh, their own front uh, front group to fight us. And they invested millions of dollars to basically not only crush the organization and they t- attacked me personally to try to, you know, get to um, uh, sort of squash my ability to have a voice. And obviously they um, amassed, you know, their own coalition of stakeholders to fight us and fight and tell the political elected officials not to support this pretty major shift in power. So it was a five-year battle. I mean, it was, I went through different staff members. I mean, it was rough. It was uh, challenging. Again, my even my team was personally attacked in different spaces because we had to do a lot of community outreach and education. So we were everywhere. So Sempra was also everywhere. So there's just, they just played dirty. But at the end of the day, over time, we got the votes. Like we didn't have it for, obviously if we had a year one, I would have called the vote. <laughs> I'm a vote counter. At the end of the day, when you're in politics, all I do is count votes. So you don't want to call the question until you have the votes. Like I'm never going to call the vote. You know, I'm never going to call for a vote if we don't know exactly what the outcome is going to be. I don't, I cannot, you know, that's not how you play this game. So it took us five years. We finally got the votes. We built and brought enough coalition and we persuaded the, the elected officials to take a risk, to go big, you know, take on this big, powerful corporation. They're like the, the landmark corporate. They're, they're, they have a massive down a tower downtown with Semper on the building. You know, they just, they hover. It's like a Batman scene. Um, so, you know, when we finally had the votes, it was pretty, no one and everyone, you know, the political establishment lobbyists are like, I just don't think you're going to win this, Nicole. It's too much. You're going to, you're asking too much and you're trying to break up a monopoly. Like that's just doesn't happen. So it did take us five years, but we did it. And I think that really shifted the landscape of what the progressive movement thought was possible. And so it's, I think a big legacy for our organization and that new entity called San Diego Community Power is thriving. They now have hundreds of millions of dollars to reinvest back into the community versus those profits going into shareholder pockets. So and they're still, you know, Sempra is still fighting that San Diego community crowd. Like they, you know, they, in other words, they never give up, but at the same time they're winning as an entity, as this new nonprofit public power entity. And so that's my story that I think, you know, we never gave up and we just fought, fought the establishment and we won and it's, and it's, and it's succeeding as you know, it's now they're about three or four years old and all this new money is going to come to help us get EVs, rooftop solar batteries you know, new money on top of the federal money coming in. And, you know, it's just like good stuff. So I think like that's a, we try to remind people we did that, you know, we can do it again. And, you know, on a grand, we can replicate scale and replicate those kind of wins. Yes. Yes. More of that. Yes. More of that. 
Well, thanks so much. For yeah, thank today. you. Thanks for doing this this hero's journey podcast. It was an honor. I to be. know it. You it feels so important to like be able to remind young folks and old folks. It's like yeah. we win, we win, we win. That's right. It's, there's just a lot of losses on the way. Yes, you just it's still your. You know that's going to be part of the story, but that's the hero's journey. <laughs> The Hero's Journey is brought to you by the Center for Food Safety. Production by Julia Ranney and Ashley Lukens. Editing and social media by Amanda Lillibridge, Duration, and Annalisa Camacho. Theme song by Walker Lukens and Adam Mason, and audio engineering by Adam Mason. You can find us across all podcast platforms and follow us at Center for Food Safety on Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook, and CFS True Food on Twitter. We're on the web at theheroesjourneypodcast.com. Do you have a hero you'd like to see on the podcast? Fill out the form in the show notes or email us at theheroesjourneypod at gmail.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, like and subscribe and make sure you'll never miss an episode. We'll see you in a few weeks.